Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Mary Donahue. I'm recording this episode on July 5th, 2023, just a few days after the 160th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, the turning point of the American Civil War. With more than 50,000 estimated casualties, the three-day engagement was the bloodiest single battle of the conflict. It's been said that there are over 5,000 books written about this three-day battle. What more can be uncovered? My guest today is Bridgeport historian Carolyn Ivanov, author of We Fought at Gettysburg, First-Hand Accounts by the Survivors of the 17th Connecticut Volunteer Infantry, published just this year by Gettysburg Publishing. We Fought at Gettysburg follows the 17th Regiment through the Gettysburg Campaign and beyond in June and July of 1863. The book contains first-hand accounts of men who lived through the trauma of battle and survived to write about it. They describe what they saw, thought, and felt on the battlefield. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Mary, for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Before we talk about the 17th Regiment's role in the battle, let's talk about the new book. I'm always curious about what inspires a historian to write a book, especially one as extensively researched and as well illustrated as this one. But this particular book has an unusual backstory. Tell us about William H. Warren. Well, William H. Warren was an 18-year-old enlistee in the 17th Connecticut in 1862. He was from Danbury. He fought with the regiment at Gettysburg. He was taken prisoner. Uh, He did live through the battle and uh, was released to return to the regiment uh, later that summer. And he, uh, you know, he mustered out with the regiment in 1865 on Hilton Head Island. What makes this gentleman a little different than the -the run-of-the-mill private is that he kept a diary throughout his uh, war years, and when he came home, he began to solicit accounts and letters and the diaries and the memories of all of the men he fought with. And he had the ambition to create uh, a regimental history. Uh, which he never published. And there are various reasons for this. It discusses this all the time in in the book about why he didn't. This vast, vast collection is uh, in the Bridgeport Public Library in its archives. Now, if you ever see this huge amount of material, it's kind of flabbergasting. Um, I've always been very intrigued by it. And have used it over the years to research various individuals. It is a remarkable collection of letters and reminisces and photographs and just everything you could think of. But it's relatively unmanageable and challenging for a researcher. Again, I had used it over the years to uh, research various individuals of the regiment and of our Fairfield County uh, community. And um, one day I was having a discussion with a friend of mine, Kevin Drake, who is the publisher of Gettysburg Publishing, the owner publisher. And uh, we were talking about our favorite subject, Gettysburg. And I said to him, you want to see something that's really interesting and unusual and unique? 
And he goes, yeah, yeah, okay. So I said, well, meet me in Bridgeport. And so we went down to the Bridgeport Public Library and Elizabeth Van Tool, the, the um, archivist down there, pulled all of this 13 volumes and various paperwork and put it, spread it out on a table. And Kevin was just, oh my God, he couldn't believe it. And yet when he started to flip through it, uh, especially the photographic album and some of the reminiscences from Gettysburg. He was just like, what a treasure trove. But how are you going to do anything with this? And I said to him, you know, this would make a good book someday. And he said to me, well, you write it. And that's how I got my book contract. The book, the writing itself took about uh, four years of consistent work. And um, I, I, it was a big bucket list item for me. And I, I'm pretty thrilled with the way the book came out and uh, the way it looks and uh, the photographs and many of the reminiscences, allowing a lot of these men to speak for themselves about what they saw and witnessed and experienced at, at Gettysburg. Let's just talk a little bit more about uh, Warren, William Warren. I think every historian has a file cabinet, whether it's in paper or digital, of projects that they've started and abandoned. And he kind of fascinates me. There's a mystery about why he didn't get this book done, but there's also a little bit of a mystery about how these papers survive. What's your take on what this, you know, what William Warren, who was obsessively collecting this material for decades, what do you speculate was his problem in kind of wrapping it up into a volume? Well, I, I do speculate all the time. And I do write in the book in the, in the beginning and at the end when I, I do a little uh, biographical story on him with uh, photographs and other things. What do I really think? I think he loved the work so much he just couldn't kill it. You know, like Robert E. Lee says, you know, it's too bad. When you love the army so much, I know I'm paraphrasing, you look at how magnificent it is, and then we have to kill what we love. I, I don't think he could bring himself to either pare down the material or uh, he could um, get it into readable form. I mean, he was obsessed with the research. He collected this until the week that he died. There, you know, he was collecting notes and reminisces. Um, he died in um, June. 1918. Uh, so he lived a good long life. He also could never come to an agreement with the regiment about a publication. And he was encouraged numerous times to cut back on the material and pare it down into a manageable form. And I just don't think he, he could do so. And he makes a statement in, in the book about why this is so. It's a very interesting, uh, very interesting to me. He was a very interesting person. And um, people who know about him, like uh, a friend of mine who lives down here in Gettysburg and is also a, a, an excellent Connecticut historian, as I was writing the book and he felt it was taking me a long time, it took me four years to write the book. He kept saying, now, don't be like William Warren now make sure you finish this. And, you know, I had no intention, but I'll tell you a big part of the book was what do you leave out? What you can't throw in the, the, the sink, the, you know, the whole, you know, the whole sink and everything. 
but you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater too. So it's a, a real tricky balance as to what you include to create a readable volume and not only a readable volume, but the volume is pretty complex and multi-layered. How do you format this volume? And again, I was very conscious that I was writing for not only historians and people who know the battle very well, but I was writing for people in Connecticut and maybe descendants who might not know much about the Battle of Gettysburg and yet were interested in these firsthand accounts. But how do you place them so that they all make sense? So it was a challenging project. And I know it's even a mystery about why all this paperwork didn't get thrown out. He was a painter by a house painter by profession. Right. And I can just see his descendants going, oh, this is this old project that he's been working on for years and chucking the whole thing. Do we know how it got to the Bridgeport Public Library collection? No, we do not. And this has been a huge mystery. There are also partial volumes in Sterling Library in Yale. I chose to use the Bridgeport volumes and um, manuscript because he states in that that that's his last and final edition. Some of it he typed, some of it is handwritten, but how did it get to Bridgeport? I know how some of the stuff got to Yale. It was it was definitely donated by their descendants and uh, one of his granddaughters. So I I know how that got there, but the Bridgeport volumes and the Bridgeport manuscript, uh, Elizabeth, uh, the archivist, and and Mary Witkowski before her had, had done a lot of research to see if there was any provenance. There's no record of how all this came to Bridgeport. It's been an enduring mystery, and there's nothing to give us a clue. I somewhat suspect that his son, Robert, who took over the painting business after him, brought it to Bridgeport. But that's purely speculation on my part. You know, I love how you have taken all these firsthand accounts. And I have to give uh, William Warren credit for collecting firsthand accounts. Now that's a very popular way to organize a book or to present an issue. And you see firsthand accounts read dramatically on television shows and reenactments. But in those days, that first-hand account was not as popular by any means. It would usually get combined into a general type of history. So those first-hand accounts, you've really done a fabulous job of giving context to them. So I could, I'm not a military historian, but I could read along and say, oh, this is why they were at this location. And here's the regiments that they encountered, or this is what happened afterwards. So there's a lot of good information in there that you've made very readable. And then you've got the firsthand accounts, which, of course, are so evocative. But um, I was interested to see. Let's talk a little bit about the 17th role. Can I I talk about that, Mary? I want to talk about William Warren was somewhat ahead of his time. He writes during the, you know, the second half of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. And he continues to collect these firsthand accounts. And that was the great man in history age when nobody wrote about these little people. And in a lot of ways, Warren is ahead of his time because 
I'm obsessed with stories about people like us. And I think more and more we're starting to look at history from the bottom up. And and Warren collected these accounts and he states explicitly he collected so many so that when he whenever anybody read them or they ever got put together, I think he knew by this time he was never going to finish this this book, uh, never going to get it into book form. He collected these accounts so that there were multiple points of view by those who experienced them. So anybody who read them would have a full picture. You see the prisoners, you see the wounded, you see the, the men that watch their friends die in combat. You see the multitude of experiences at Gettysburg. And this was important to me because, you know, this is as close as we in the 21st century can get to seeing and witnessing what they saw on the battlefield and beyond. And so I was very, very intrigued by what he did. Oh, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the 17th Volunteer. So I was interested to see how the regiment was formed and then how they develop the the companies under that. Can you just explain how the numbers work on that? A Civil War regiment is generally a thousand men, led by a colonel, appointed by the governor usually, and it contains 10 companies of 100 men each, led by a captain. So that's the regimental formation, and the regimental formation all over the nation during the Civil War. The 17th Connecticut, among Connecticut regiments is absolutely unique because it was recruited from Fairfield County. The other regiments from Connecticut, and there were 29 of them, the 29th being uh, the Black Regiment that was recruited. And then uh, there was technically a 30th Regiment of Colored Troops, but uh, they were incorporated into the United States colored troops. So basically we had 29 regiments, infantry regiments. So the 17th is unique in regard to the fact that it was solely Fairfield County men. All the other regiments of our small state of Connecticut, small but powerful, small but mighty, the arsenal of the union were recruited from counties all over the state. So it's a little unique. There was a lot of anti-German sentiment at the time. Uh, being mm-hmm. Irish, I'm familiar with the no Irish need apply sentiment. Mm-hmm. Tell us about yep. the anti-German sentiment. Germans are the largest immigrant minority in the United States at this time. The 11th Corps, which our regiment, our 17th Regiment, is incorporated into, uh, is um, considered the German Regiment or the Dutch Regiment. Because approximately 40% of that Army Corps are German immigrants. Now, the Connecticut, 17th Connecticut, is considered a Yankee regiment within that Army Corps. However, there were many German immigrants in the 17th Connecticut. So immigration is something that our country has been dealing with. And I say dealing with because there's always been anti-immigrant sentiment throughout our history. So what really happens with the 11th Corps and this anti-German feelings coming to the fore 
is that the Battle of Chancellorsville, the 11th Corps, is on the very end or flank of the Union line. And the flank is up in the air. The generals take no care to make sure that the flank is anchored. And it becomes quite the target for Stonewall Jackson's famous flank attack at Chancellorsville. 26,000 screaming Confederates come yelling out of the woods at the tip of the Union line. And ironically, that is held by the 11th Corps. More ironically, our poor 17th Connecticut has two companies out on picket during this debacle. And um, Captain French, Wilson French from Stratford, is leading the picket line. And suddenly, little animals start scurrying through the woods toward, toward the men. And then two huge deer break through and French notes that they're fine specimens. I mean, maybe the guys are hungry. <laughs> I know some of them are in the back of the line um, trying to cook up. It's about five o'clock. They're trying to cook up their supper. And then 26,000 screaming Confederates come out of the woods and they literally roll up the Union line. And Chancellorsville becomes Robert E. Lee's greatest victory and the Army of the Potomac's greatest defeat. Well, what happens? You got to have scapegoats when something like that happens. And the 11th Corps is the German Corps. And uh, we start to see this libel printed against them and this prejudice uh, against them. And they basically become the scapegoats. They, uh, they become the Flying Dutchmen. Um, Howard's Cowards. Uh, General Howard was their commander. Howard's cowards and all sorts of slander gets um, put against the Corps. And it's a very heavy burden for these men. And our Yankee regiment, the 17th Connecticut, when they write home, they try to distance themselves from this catastrophe and their German sister regiments. But of course, the 11th Corps is uh, is uh, blemished with this defeat very, very unjustly. So that there seems to be that divide. So you've got the Connecticut born, as you would say, Yankee soldiers and then immigrant soldiers that are also in their regiment. We'll be back in a minute with my guest. I just recently saw this exhibit and I couldn't recommend it more highly. The Litchfield Historical Society's newest exhibition to come to a land of milk and honey, Litchfield and the Connecticut Western Reserve is now on display. Learn more about this land in present-day Ohio that was reserved by Connecticut after the American Revolution for its continued use and settlement. Exhibition supported by a grant from Connecticut Humanities. Learn more and plan your visit with free admission at litchfieldhistoricalsociety.org. I'm Kathy Hermes, publisher of Connecticut Explored, and I'm looking for people who like to tell a good story. Whether you're new to history writing or have lots of experience, we'd love to hear your ideas. Go to ctexplored.org backslash write to see our upcoming themes. Send your ideas to publisher at ctexplored.org. And thanks for listening to Grading the Nutmeg. What are some of the parts of the battlefield where the 17th really saw action? 
Well, the 17th at Gettysburg, and by the way, they have vowed to themselves they are never going to run again. And they're marching up from Virginia. They'll spend June 30th, the night before the battle in Emmitsburg, Maryland. And then on July 1st, marching orders are issued and they will march about 12 miles into Gettysburg. Basically, some of that march is to the sound of the guns. So there's no doubt they're going into battle. They fight on the first day at a place called Barlow's Knoll. It's named after a farmer called Blocker. But after the war, it will take on the name of the commanding general of the division, Francis Barlow. Uh, 28 years old, very aggressive. He rolls his division right out onto this knoll overlooking Rock Creek and creates a salient. It's going to be a very disastrous event, very similar to Chancellorsville for these men. They're going to be outnumbered three, three and a half to one by their Confederate, by the Confederate attackers who are going to literally encircle them and crush them in a vice. Um, many are killed, wounded, taken prisoner. The survivors, you know, stand for a bit, but nothing can stand against this Confederate blitz. And the survivors retreat through the town of Gettysburg and uh, reform their lines on East Cemetery Hill. So Barlow's Knoll is the disaster of the first day for many, many of these men. And the accounts in the book, I call them voices from the first day, where these men write about this and they write about being captured or wounded or taken prisoner. And they write about what they went through here on this location of the battlefield. The second day, uh, they will be engaged in a night fight on East Cemetery Hill, which is hellacious. Again, they're outnumbered. It's just the, the odds are against them. And yet they prevail. They beat back the Confederate invaders, Confederate attackers. And um, again, there are voices of the second day uh, that where they are allowed to express themselves and their experiences. Now, after the battle, you have an interesting chapter about the aftermath in terms of being wounded, captured. Connecticut families were really tremendously involved in finding out what had happened to their husbands and sons right after the battle. Yep. Share some of those stories. Well, some of those stories begin with the fact that the Army, and this is very hard for 21st century people to understand, begin with the Army not notifying families if a soldier dies or is killed in combat. So notification comes from a comrade, a friend who witnesses the man's death or sees the man wounded and writes home, a commanding officer writing home to a family. There are casualty lists. They are horribly inaccurate. I talk about those in the book, and I, I just can't imagine being in that situation as a family member. Um, holding my breath, hoping that my loved one made it through battle. These men live, these men are in battle for three days. They are going to live with the battle for the rest of their lives. And much of the book is, I would say a good half of the book is devoted to the aftermath. And Connecticut families, like many American families during the war and since, want their dead to come home. 
and will go through extreme lengths to make this happen. And there are accounts in the book of these horrendous trips by family members to come to Gettysburg to retrieve their beloved dead and to bring them home to Connecticut. There are a couple of very remarkable accounts of this. There's also another very remarkable account by a reverend uh, from Ridgefield who comes down here, Reverend Nash. He comes down here and he writes an account of this terrible journey, but he also keeps a list of all of the expenses. I've never seen a document like this at all. He actually names the um, embalmer that embalms his nephew before he can be brought home, and which embalming is a whole nother story. And so a photograph of that embalmer is in the book because I was able to locate it at the National Museum of Civil War Medicine. And I, I have to make a, a comment about that. Two days ago, uh, the Adams County Historical Society and the Center for Civil War Photography finally revealed some very interesting information about that photograph that I put in the book. And um, so you have to know that a lot of the photographs in the book have been unpublished before. And um, there are many of them. And I find the photographs very intriguing because they let us see what these men saw in 1863. So these accounts are, I mean, I, I, I don't know how interesting or compelling I'm being with my descriptions. But again, I, I can't match the eloquence of the people that went through this. And they are intriguing. I thought so too. And I encourage the listeners to get the book so you can read firsthand. But it was so fascinating to me that because this was obviously fought on American soil, families actually sent people down, the other uncles, brothers, relatives went down to actually find wounded men from their yep. families in the hospitals. And there's an interesting account of how the field hospital starts, but then they also send the wounded to out to places like Baltimore and other places. So you'd really have to try to track down what hospital pretty far afield from Gettysburg your loved one might be in. Yep. And then there's just the whole issue of there's going to be so many times where they can't identify bodies. They can't figure out an accurate count. They don't know who survived. It's surprising to us in the 21st century, like you said, that we're so accustomed to everyone having their own, let's say, phone or an easy way to find a photograph of someone or even locating you know, where they are by their phone. But this is completely... It's absolutely heart-rending when you have these families. There's one family, David Bartram, Lieutenant Bartram's family. His brother and his wife come down here and um, they believe he's dead. He's not. He's a, he's a prisoner. He's one of the very unlucky prisoners who will not be released after a um, few months. He uh, winds up he winds up spending um, twenty months in various Confederate prisons of the South, a nightmare, uh, until he is released in March of 1865. But after the Battle of Gettysburg, he is uh, unknown. His fate is unknown. His family believes he is dead. His family comes down, his wife and his brother come down here 
Uh, they know he's not in any of the hospitals. Uh, he's not wounded. They actually, like many others, go out onto the field at Barlow's Knoll and they begin opening graves. Uh, and this is not unusual. They're opening graves. Many of the graves are very shallow. Some of them are mass graves. And they're hoping to identify him by a pair of boots, giving you an idea of how bad these uh, bodies are after, you know, a, f a couple of weeks in the July heat. Um, they're hoping to identify David by the pair of iron-heeled shoes he's wearing that were made in Connecticut, apparently a one-of-a-kind shoe. And they're, you know, and but this is not just Connecticut people. This, they're opening graves. They're, now you open these mass graves and you're looking for someone and you technically they cover them up, but not very well. So you can just imagine what this battlefield looks like. As far as the wounded, let me talk about that. They had to get the wounded out of here as quickly as possible. Gettysburg was a town of about 2,400. The armies leave behind about 24,000 wounded. Every house, every barn, every field, anywhere there's a source of water becomes this hospital. As soon as the uh, railroad is repaired, they start shipping the wounded that can be transported out to Baltimore, to York, Pennsylvania, to Harrisburg, to Philadelphia. They've just got to get people out of this charnel house. You could smell Gettysburg many miles away before you arrived here. So the situation is, the aftermath was ignored for many years. We talked about William Warren uh, writing about people like us. A lot of these issues were, were never really academically examined. And now here and at other battlefields, there's a great deal of scholarship being paid uh, to the aftermath of battle. And it is a fascinating subject. You know, it's a world without electric lighting. It's a world without running water. It's a world without basically it's a world lit only by fire at night and yet you're dealing with tens of thousands of horribly wounded men in your streets in your homes on your farms it's just a fascinating and horrible subject that is now coming to light after the war the this happened all throughout the both sides of the conflict, but the regiment formed a survivors association, right. and then they worked with the state of Connecticut and the federal government to put monuments on the battlefield. Can you talk a little bit about those monuments? Yes, yes, I can. Um, I don't believe the federal government was very involved at all, but state governments absolutely were. The regimental survivors absolutely were. In the case of the 17th Connecticut, they would come back here in 1884 and dedicate their monument, their main monument on Barlow's Knoll. Presumably, it marks the part where their beloved Captain Moore was killed instantly with two shots to the head. They would return a year later and they would erect a flagpole on Barlow's Knoll, close by the monument, which they said marked the spot where 
Colonel Fowler was killed. Now, Colonel Fowler's spectacular and horrible death in battle is going to be something none of these men will ever forget, even amidst the close quarter, hand-to-hand, horrific combat they are involved in. This death makes an impression on everyone who witnesses it. There's a lot about that in the book. So those two monuments mark their positions on Barlow's Knoll. In 1889, the regiment returns, and with the help of money from the state of Connecticut, they erect uh, an obelisk or a shaft monument on East Cemetery Hill at the foot of East Cemetery Hill, where they fought that night fight on July 2nd. So they have three monuments here, if you want to include the flagpole at Gettysburg. With all of the first person and primary source accounts in the book, what do you think are the most, some of the most unique and why? Well, we talked about that Dr. Nash's account coming down to, from Connecticut to Gettysburg to retrieve his beloved dead nephew. That document, that account, and the accompanying ledger, expense ledger that he keeps is, is just one of the most unique I've ever seen. Um, there is a second account of a of a brother and a fiance coming down from Connecticut. That is another extraordinary extraordinary account. Um, again, the travels from Connecticut to Gettysburg to retrieve the beloved dead. That is a very multi layered account and really well written. Uh, the other one I would say we talked about Colonel Fowler. There is a letter from Corporal Perry, who was the last man to have possession of Douglas Fowler's body. And there are newspaper accounts also with regard to that of men coming from Connecticut to try to retrieve his body. There was every expectation that Colonel Fowler, after he was killed that first day, his body would be retrieved, returned to Connecticut, and he would have a hero's funeral in Norwalk. Well, that did not seem to be the case. The horrific wounding or death that he suffered probably made it impossible to identify his body after it was dropped on the battlefield. But there was a concerted effort by several soldiers to try to save the colonel's body. And uh, that just didn't happen. And that letter, the last, the letter that Corporal Perry writes about having possession of Fowler's body, I think is is something that you don't often see ever in firsthand accounts. Before I thank my guest, Carolyn Ivanov, I just want to read one short little piece from the book. Private John Collins, Company C, is listed in several places as being wounded at Gettysburg on an unspecified date, and maybe that was July 1. He's listed on the roster at Springler Farm as being wounded as Collins, John, Private, 17th CTB, lower right leg and knee, water dressing. This description of the injury is really consistent with John's description. But there's more to John's story. On August 29, 1863, the Hartford Current reprinted a story from the Stanford Advocate entitled Narrow Escape. This short article described Collins' wounding. Narrow Escape. We saw a few days since a Roman Catholic prayer book, which had been carried in the breast pocket of John Collins, a member of the 17th CV at the Battle of Gettysburg. 
A mini ball penetrated Colin's clothing and passed through the prayer book to the 199th page. Between this page and the next is a picture of our Savior teaching a child. On this picture, not the slightest impression of the ball is visible. The book is treasured as having been the providential means of saving the life of its owner. I want to thank my guest, historian and author Carolyn Ivanoff. To order a copy of We Fought at Gettysburg, please go to gettysburgpublishing.com or amazon.com. Carolyn is available for book talks. Please go to the show notes for her website and contact information. I also want to thank our sponsor, the Litchfield Historical Society. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the Donate button at the top, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link at the bottom. Donations in any amount are greatly appreciated. We thank you. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at highwattagemedia.com. This is Mary Donahue. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history.